All of us have fears of one kind or another. Maybe uh, may, your fears may be different than mine, mine different than yours, different from each other. But we all have fears. I did a little searching this week about common fears. And the things that tend to pop up at the top of the list are things like flying and heights, falling. There seems to be a connection with those. Uh, the dark, uh, fear of water. I, I hate to say this, but the only occupation that people are afraid of is the dentist, uh, which you could probably understand why. You hear that drill and it makes fear in your heart. The uh, people are afraid of uh, snakes, spiders, death. It intrigued me that death is actually on most of the list, came out like fifth or sixth. You would think it'd be higher on the list than that. And uh, then I remembered a, a little thing that Jerry Seinfeld used, once said that he said that he heard, saw a survey that said that the number one fear of the average person is public speaking. And number two was death. He said, death is number two. You would think it, wouldn't, it would be number one. But he said, I guess that means that if you have to go to a funeral for the average person, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> I'm not sure that's true, but I don't know. But we, we wrestle with all kinds of fears. The reality is, though, that there are those kinds of fears. And then there are deeper fears. The fear of intimacy, fear of rejection, fear of being abandoned, the fear of being alone, fear of failure. And what I find is that those kinds of fears tend to drive a lot of what we do in our lives. Those kinds of fears tend to have a lot, carry a lot of weight in what we do or don't do. You think for a moment about something that you've said for a long time. I've always wanted to do that. Why haven't you? I suspect some part of the answer to that is fear. We all wrestle with them. You know, it, 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 it has a bearing on our relationships. It has a bearing on our occupations. It has a bearing on life in general. And fears tend to drive us. All you have to do is look at, the, at how the political world operates. It's been going on for a long time, but just take, go back to the last election cycle. And if you watch the ads closely, if you listen to them, if you listen to the speeches, you will find that the majority of the time, if not almost all the time, the candidates are talking far less about what they're going to do and far more about what's going to happen if that person is elected. If you vote for them, the world as you know it will no longer exist. If you vote for that person, your life is done. And, and they use fear as a motivation to action. Quite frankly, a lot of Christian organizations use fear. They send out letters, they, they, they make calls saying, if, if, if you don't support us, if you don't help us, all of these terrible things are going to happen. And it's creating this atmosphere of fear that drives us, but fear also paralyzes us. There are so many things about life that we do not do because we are afraid. If you were here last Sunday, we'll 
preached from the parable of the talents. And in that parable, two of the, of the servants are commended by the master because they took risks. And the one servant is condemned by the master because he was afraid. Fear is not of God. Now, granted, we talk about fearing God, but that's something different. That's awe and respect and and worship. But the kind of fear that tends to drive us is not that kind of fear. It's, It's the kind of fear that paralyzes us. It's the kind of fear that causes us to do things that don't look anything like Jesus. And leads us down pathways that are not the pathways of Jesus. That kind of fear is not of God. And that's why when so often in the scriptures, when an angel appears to someone or when God himself appears to someone, almost invariably the very first words out of their mouth is, do not be afraid. John writes and says, perfect love casts out fear. And so when Jesus steps into this room with the disciples, they are overwhelmed with fear. John tells us here that they have locked themselves in this room. It is the night of the resurrection, just three days since Jesus was crucified. They have locked themselves in the room for fear of the Jewish religious leaders. Now that fear is not unsubstantiated. This is a real fear. They just watch Jesus whom they believed was the Messiah, whom they believed was the one they've been waiting for, who had the power of God, maybe even God himself, as they were thinking through this. This is the one they've been waiting for. This is him. And the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans crucified him. I think I would be fearful too. So here they are huddled in this room. And and what fear does to us, it tends to cause us to to escape and, and to seclude ourselves. We try to build as many walls around us as we can to protect ourselves. It's the most natural thing in the world to do. When we are afraid, we tend, really afraid, we tend to do one of two things, either fight or flight. That instinct kicks in, right? It's just what we do. I've done it. And maybe we're more, we're more inclined to one or the other, but it is the most natural response. It's, it's what the animal kingdom does. Earlier this week, I was out running on the road by our house, a big field, there were five or six deer out there, and they, they saw me coming, and they, they turned, they watched me for a while until I got close enough, and then they all ran. But if I were out there and I encountered a bear... Or a lion. I don't think we probably have lions. Though there have been sightings of bears. I, wouldn't, I don't think they would run. I think they would, they would bare their teeth and get their claws up and be ready to fight. And the church has had a tendency to either fight or flight. There have been times in history in the church where we've said, what we need to do in this sinful world is to seclude ourselves from everybody else. We'll, we'll circle the wagons, we'll build the walls, and we'll just become this little holy place waiting for Jesus. The Thessalonians tried to do that, and Paul said, that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world. But then there's the other extreme, which I think actually we see more 
we see more prominent today, and that is when we are opposed, we go on the attack. If they're going to treat us like that, we're going to treat them like that. We're going to use all the same strategies that everybody else uses. We are going to fight. And it often turns into, into conversations about rights. And I think there is a time of wisdom when getting away from the danger is the right thing to do. And there is a time when we stand up for what is right and true, but not because we're afraid. But because we believe this is the right thing to do. See, the problem with with using fear as a motivator is all it does is make us more afraid. And so Jesus steps into this room and says, peace be unto you. In other words, don't be afraid. Feel my peace. And, And John says, when they saw Jesus, they were overjoyed. The presence of Jesus changed the whole dynamic of that room. They were filled with joy. I think because now they understood something, at least, about why the tomb was empty that morning. But there is this reality of seeing Jesus. It changes our perspective. And and it speaks into our fears. And for us, we don't get to see the physical presence of Jesus. But we can see Jesus many ways. Primarily through the spiritual disciplines. That's why reading scripture on a regular basis is so important because it keeps Jesus in front of us. It keeps us image of Jesus, a perspective of Jesus. We keep seeing it over and over and over again. We're reminded of who God is and what God has promised and how God has dealt with people through the ages. And we understand that. We see him. We do the same thing with prayer. We get an image of Jesus as we pray to him and as we listen to him speak to us and worship. It's a primary means that we have of seeing Jesus. As we sing the songs in worship, we're reminded of the truths of who God is and of the kingdom. And we read the scriptures and we pray together. And all of these things are ways of reminding us of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he has promised. And we see him. It's one of the reasons why I I think following the church calendar is always a good idea. Because over the course of the six seasons of the year... All of them focus on a different part of of Jesus. Every one of them is designed to to focus our attention on Jesus. And we need that because our natural inclination is to focus life and worship on us. And if our focus is on us, that's going to lead to fear. What we need is to focus on Jesus. But Jesus doesn't just appear. That's not enough because they, they could see him, and I imagine them saying, Jesus, sit down, you join us here, and we'll just hang out here forever. But Jesus has a word for them. And he says to them, look, as I have sent you, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You can't just stay here. It's important to be here. It's important to see Jesus. It's important to to have those experiences. But the point of the experiences is not just to have an experience. The point of it is to go. I have a feeling they were scratching their heads because uh, maybe someone asked, Jesus, wait, let me get this straight. You want us to go from this place of security and walk right into the teeth? 
of the people who are threatening us? And I can see Jesus saying, yeah, that pretty well sums it up. That's it. The threat was real. When they walked out of that room, Jesus didn't say to them, now, I want you to go because I'm not going to let anything happen to you. You read the book of Acts. You know that's not true. You read church history. You know that's not true. He never promises us freedom from the risk of the threats. He does promise to be with us. And he sends us out. And the answer to our fears is to, in the, in the presence and the power of Jesus, to walk right in, right at our fears. It's what we do. When everything in us wants to run away, the call of the gospel is to run to. It is a, it is a supreme act of trust. It is saying, I believe, Jesus, that you have indeed conquered all of my enemies that you have won, that everything is defeated. And because I know that, because I've experienced that, because I trust that, I can walk in faith, even in fear, even in the threats, even in the danger, even in the most difficult circumstances. Because I believe that what you have said is true. And I believe your, pop, your promises are always true. I find it interesting that as he sends us out, as he speaks to the disciples about going, he tells them to do one thing. There are lots of things that Jesus could have told them. And when you read other places of scripture, you find different messages. But here in this moment, at this time, on the night of the resurrection, Jesus says, I'm going to send you out. And here's what you're going to do. You are going to be agents of my forgiveness. He could have said, I want you to go out and do miracles. I want you to go out and teach. I want you to go out and and do this or do that. But he says, one thing is, I want you to go out and be agents of forgiveness. And I think the reason he says that in this particular instance, when he's dealing with their fear, is because most of our fears are, are, are related to people and relationships. Most of those deepest fears, the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, the fear of being abandoned, the fear of pain and hurt that comes to us, most of that is about other people. And what we need in those moments more than anything is a willingness to forgive the hurt that people have caused us. To forgive people for the pain that they have inflicted or are threatening to inflict upon us. I think it's a little bit harder for us to understand this concept than it is for many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world. Who every day live with the reality of threats. Who every day live with the truth that those fears are real. And the response that God calls for them to have and for us to have is forgiveness. I sometimes wonder if the most profound act of love is forgiveness. We tend to offer forgiveness when people ask us for it. 
We tend to offer forgiveness when people, we feel like people have done enough to deserve it. I am awfully glad that God doesn't treat us that way. Because the truth is, none of us deserve it. None of us have got done enough. None of us are ever at, have ever come to the place where the forgiveness of God is something we have earned. Rather, it is God's gift. And Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. The confusing part of this passage is that last sentence where he says, you know, he says, if you forgive people their sins, then they're forgiven. If you do not forgive their sins, they're not forgiven. And that confuses us because it makes it appear as if God is saying to us, look, their forgiveness rests in your hands. And so we stand back and say, mm, yeah, all right, I'll, we'll forgive them. Mm, no, nah, not so much. I'm, they haven't gotten there yet. And we have this power to, to give forgiveness or not to people's sins. I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying because none of us can forgive sins. Only Jesus can forgive sins. On the other hand, he does tell us that we are agents of his forgiveness. And I, can't, I don't claim to understand what Jesus exactly is saying here. In fact, scholars have been debating this probably since the night Jesus spoke these words. But there is something about God giving us power, giving us the authority to be agents of forgiveness. And there are sometimes people who do not want forgiveness. And sometimes we have to acknowledge that. But this is not a power trip for us to say, we get to choose who gets forgiven and who doesn't. Eugene Peterson says in the message at this last sentence, he says, if you do not forgive them, what are you going to do with those sins? I don't know exactly how he came to that particular translation of it, but there is something about that, that there is something in us that says, I'm not going to forgive them. And Jesus is saying, why not? Why do you want to hold on to that? Why do you want to keep that? You do realize that not forgiving people is enslaving you more than it is them. But I also think that this is not so much a word to us as individuals as it is to the church as a whole. He is saying to the disciples, he's saying to his people, you as my church are agents of forgiveness in this world. And you need the world needs it because who else is going to offer it? Who else is going to be, a, be agents of forgiveness in this world but the, one who, who, the followers of the one who on the cross said, Father, forgive them. This is our calling. It's one of the things that sets us apart from all the other people of the world. That the church is an agent of forgiveness. And that's why we have to be so careful that we are motivated by fear and driven by fear. Because if we are driven by fear, we are not very apt to forgive. We will be more apt to be vindictive and hold grudges and fight with people rather than forgive them. And what people need, just like what we need... Is forgiveness. To look at so, look someone in the eye and say to them, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. It's a powerful word.
And to have someone say that to us, to look us in the eye and say, you are forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. There is power, spiritual power in that. That can change a life. It is imperative to understand that before Jesus says, I'm sending you to be agents of forgiveness, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And that's what enables Jesus to give us the kind of authority to be agents of forgiveness. Because it's really not us, it's the Holy Spirit in us. It's the Holy Spirit working through us. And the church gets itself in trouble when we ignore the Holy Spirit, when we're close to the Holy Spirit, and all we do is act like every other human being, every other organization. But when the church is is filled with the Spirit, then we become like Christ. And we respond to people like Christ, and we speak words that look sound like Christ, and we act like Christ. When, when Jesus breathes on them, as I read that passage, it, it made me go back to Genesis chapter 2. God is creating human beings and, and he shapes them out of the dust and then he breathes into them and they come alive. And Exodus, or, uh, Ezekiel 37 says, what do you see, Ezekiel? He looks at it and says, I see this valley of bones. And God says, prophesy to the bones. And he does. And they start coming together. And they start putting, he starts putting tendons on them. And then flesh surrounds them. But they're still just lying there. Until the spirit breathes into them. And they come alive. And Jesus breathes on them. And says, receive the Holy Spirit. And the disciples come alive. They are different people. There is some uh, speculation about how John describes the the coming of the Spirit on the disciples and how Luke describes it in Acts chapter 2. John says the Spirit comes on them the night of the resurrection. Luke says it comes on them 50 days later at Pentecost. And neither one acknowledges the other's story. And there are scholars who say, well, that just shows you that the Scriptures, you can't trust the Scriptures. But I, I I think the reality is that Both things happened. And it tells us that the Holy Spirit is not about one moment in time, one extraordinary moment that we experience and then we don't think about the Spirit at all for the rest of our lives. No, the Spirit comes to us again and again and again and again. The Holy Spirit living in us, whether as a person or as a a church... It's about a moment-by-moment experience of the Spirit. And sometimes we get these extraordinary moments like Pentecost. But the truth is, we live in the power of the Spirit and in the life of the Spirit because we are open to the Spirit's leading and guiding and work every moment of every day. And the Spirit keeps working in us again and again and again and again. Because the alternative is we're living our lives, we're trying to be agents of forgiveness, we're trying to deal with fear on our own. Which is a big part of the problem. It's the Spirit. And Jesus says to the disciples earlier in John, when the Spirit comes, one of the things the Spirit is going to do is to remind you 
of everything I've told you, remind you of everything I've done. And the Holy Spirit in us shows us Jesus. The Holy Spirit reminds us that Jesus has conquered death, that Jesus has won, that Jesus is victorious. And because Jesus is victorious, we can live victorious. And that means our fears don't have to engulf us. We don't have to be, we don't have to be driven by fear. We can be driven by the joy of Christ, by the abundant life of Christ. Does that mean the fears aren't real? No. It just means, I'm going to go out on a limb, it just means that Jesus is realer. Jesus is more real. The fears are true. The threats are, are true. Read the book of Acts. Look at church history. They're true. They're all too real. But Jesus is more. And Jesus tells the disciples, even if it costs you your life, I am still faithful. I am still in control. I have still conquered and won. Trust me. For the better part of the first half of the 16th century, Martin Luther was on a... uh, a crusade, a campaign for the kingdom. He fought many enemies. His goal was to reform the church, and and that cost him greatly. He lived in constant fear of threats on his life. He lived in constant uh, work, trying to do the work of the kingdom as God revealed it to him. He translated the, the Bible into German so people could read it. He was writing theological treaties all the time. He was teaching pastors. I mean, his life was was extremely full. And in the midst of all of those threats and all of that stress and pressure, there were many times when he became extremely discouraged. And when I read the stories, it feels to me like he's battling depression. And the threats that were so real to him. And he used to say that one of the things that brought him out of that as much as anything else was music. He talked about how music was God's gift and therefore one of the greatest potential ways that we could use against the devil. The devil hates it when Christians sing because it always creates a spirit of joy in God's people. And he hates that. And so one of the things Luther did as a part of the Reformation was to write hymns and to bring back congregational singing that had been gone from the church for almost a thousand years. Luther's most famous hymn begins, A mighty fortress is our God. When you come to the third verse, he says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage We can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So let goods 
and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body, they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen.